As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Thursday, August 25th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior. On this episode, we're going to discuss the returns, or lack thereof, on top and closers this season, and whether or not that will change strategies for you in 2023 and possibly beyond. We'll talk about a few future relievers currently on the rise, either players that will go much earlier in 2023 drafts or possible late season trade and pickup targets in some instances if you're in a long-term league that still allows you to make those kinds of moves. We're also going to talk about the ongoing need for speed. We are chasing steals like we have been pretty much every draft season for the last 20 years. But as we all know, it's been a little more intense in recent years trying to find viable sources of speed. We'll talk about some players that could actually sustain their current speed longer than expected. I'm trying to learn lessons, Al. It's that time of year, retracing my steps, trying to figure out what I might have done wrong or what I could have done better and apply that to future seasons. Let's start with relievers. I think I just want to start with kind of a broad question. Do you think this year is typical for closer performance? Do you think it's better than usual or worse than usual for the returns on closers looking back at draft day price relative to output because sometimes I think the current season seems like an outlier and then when you pull (laughs) back and look at last three last five last ten you realize that it's not as different as it appears on the surface my perception is that it's pretty much the same because I just the last few years uh if I'm remembering correctly I I go into drafts pretty much assuming that nobody's really all that safe um, but you know, I'm looking at right now the leaderboard on fan graphs for roto value. Uh, right now, number one is Emmanuel Classe. He has searched ahead of Ryan Helsley, who had been at the top for a while. And then behind Helsley is Edwin Diaz. So we've got two of the three top relievers in terms of, of roto value who were, you know, not they weren't being drafted up with uh, Hader and, and Hendricks, but they weren't too far behind either. So... To me, that does seem pretty normal. It's not like nobody that we expected to have fantasy value has has wound up being among the leaders. But I think it's just normal, too, for us to focus on the players who really uh, 
really fell short of expectations, especially, I mean, this year, because we had relievers, the top relievers going so far ahead of where they normally go. Uh, and I think that there was an assumption of safety uh, that maybe hadn't been there the last few years. But I think I think essentially it's it's the same as any other year. Yeah, so the way draft season went for me, I started off way back in November last year. The very first sorts of draft and hold leagues that I was in, I felt there was an advantage to possibly taking two of the top eight, top ten closers. I think my group was about eight closers that I really liked, and I thought if I can get two of those guys within my first six or seven picks, things are fine. I'll, I'll take maybe Hader in the late third, early fourth. Uh, Liam Hendricks was in that range for me. And then I'll try to come back with Ryan Presley. That was before he had the knee injury pop up or Rysel Iglesias, or if it you know push comes to shove and we get to the bottom of the group, maybe Jordan Romano. And that would be the dream scenario in leagues without in-season moves, especially because you can't go pick up the saves that come in on the waiver wire. And I think those guys have jobs to themselves and the skills to deliver on expectations. Prices crept up from those spots, which were already high. Those were those were reasonably high prices to pay for closers. And by the time we got to February and March, the, the leagues where we could make in-season moves, it became more difficult for me to justify that top-end price because the players we were starting to pass on were four to five category hitters that I really liked. When we started to see Hader get into that 30 to 35 range overall, and, and Hendricks was right there with them, that seemed just a little bit too steep. And I don't know, I don't know if my reasoning was right, but at least backing off those players was the right move based on what's happened. And I'm trying not to confuse a bad process or a sketchy process with a good result. I'm trying not to abandon what I thought was a good strategy in the face of a few things going wrong on a player-by-player level. I mean, Josh Hader, who's healthy by all accounts right now, as our, our friend Ian Kahn mentioned on the show earlier this week, was actually dropped in his NFBC main event league by Phil Dussault, who had probably the best fantasy baseball season in NFBC history last year. So incredibly bright player dropping Josh Hader after paying the premium for Josh Hader several months back, that to me was a pretty good indicator that, wow, things have really changed in terms of just the the way Josh Hader is being viewed. Then I saw our friend Eric Carabell had a piece that was about, should you drop Josh Hader? And I'm like, well, okay. So like this is, this is the conversation now around someone that I thought was probably the safest reliever in the pool or the second safest reliever in the pool. And now we're kind of having conversations about Hader that are looking and saying, is he coming back? Is he coming back to the previous elite level? Is this a, a blip similar to what we've seen from bad Edwin Diaz when Edwin Diaz has struggled? Or even Craig Kimbrell has gone through this more in recent years. I don't remember this happening to Kimbrell in the first five or six years of his career. Maybe it did. So I'll have to dig in and see if we have a partial season of Craig Kimbrell just getting knocked around and temporarily losing his job. But my memory doesn't have a a window where that happened. So with Hader specifically, are you looking at him as someone that is still fixable? Do you look at the underlying numbers and still see more good than bad? Or do you actually have cause for concern moving forward? I'm not even sure there's anything to fix with Hader. (laughs) 
Uh, I would, if he were dropped, I would absolutely uh, scoop him up. And the reason that I say that is because if you look year to year at the peripherals, he, he's been very consistent and that consistency is, has really carried over into this year. So the strikeout rate, uh, you know, is always exceptionally high that that hasn't eroded. Uh, the walk rate is always a little bit high, but you live with it. This is his uh, lowest walk rate since 2019. Not by a lot. I'm not trying to say he's dramatically improved that, but definitely hasn't gotten worse. A 10.1% walk rate after 10.7 last year and 12.8 in the short 2020 season. Uh, and you can look at the the home run ratio and say, okay, well, there's the problem. Almost 1.9 home runs per nine, which is, it's not good. But 2020, 1.42, 2019, 1.78. And that's that's a function of Hater being an extreme fly ball pitcher. And then the good side of that DVR, the flip side, is that that typically goes with a really low BABIP. Previous three seasons in terms of BABIP, 237, 161, 232. And actually, prior to this year, he had never had a, a single season BABIP as high as 240. His BABIP this year is 338. So to me... That that just says that this is this is the problem. I mean, in terms of like taking a, a broader lessons learned approach, this is the problem with going all in on relievers in like the third or fourth round because they don't pitch enough innings for something like a BABIP rate to normalize if if there's a, a fluke. And his you know his xFIP is right in line with where it's been in previous years. Um, he seems like kind of the same pitcher with the same home run risk. Um, but overall, this is, yeah, this is somebody that we all felt really confident about investing in heavily on draft day. And and the profile is virtually the same. The one thing that has been found to be different, and I didn't see this, I didn't notice this from watching him, but Sports Info Solutions had a post in their blog, I think it was even before the trade happened to San Diego, that Hater's release point had changed kind of a lot and and the the piece suggested that part of what makes Hater so unhittable is deception right the the way he kind of hides the ball and the arm angle and the release point all of that kind of work together to make it even more difficult to pick up his stuff which is good on top of all that right we're not talking about a guy that's throwing 92 and hiding the ball we're talking about a guy that's actually throwing about as hard as he's ever thrown he's at 97.4 miles per hour at the fastball this season you'd think you'd be getting better results. But if hitters are seeing it, it means hitters are hitting it. Or if they're able to know more confidently if it's a fastball or a slider, that makes those pitches a lot less effective too. So I get the sense that it's correctable because it's not its not a deterioration in stuff. The only thing that would give me some pause is if the cause of the release point change was the result of a physical ailment. If something didn't feel right in his arm or somewhere in that area, that could be the long-term issue. But that's always something we're worried about with pitchers in general. So I tend to be on the side that you're on where I look at him and I say, this is just bizarre. He's he's going to come back from this temporary break from the closer role the Padres are giving him right now. And he's probably going to find it. Maybe not all the way back to the old release point. Maybe that's an off-season adjustment. And in-season, it's more just tweaking things to get kind of comfortable with what he's doing right now. But I'd be in for sure. If he became available in a 10-team league, a 12-team league, I think even the league Ian was in was a 15-team league, I would have no hesitation picking him up if I'm still competing for saves this year. 
if I could trade for him in a long-term league and I felt like the, the bargain was was still there price-wise, I know we're at the point in Hader's career where he's not necessarily cheap in keeper leagues anymore, I would still have some interest in possibly trading for him too. Um, he's not a free agent until after next season. It's going to be his last arbitration year. The Padres made that big trade to get him. They've been a team that's avoided committees for the most part. Like I, I don't I don't think we're worried about committee risk there. That really ticks all the boxes and what we're still looking for in a very good closer. But I think this experience is worth considering as we evaluate players long-term. And Edwin Diaz is another good example of this. Edwin Diaz was not cheap. And Edwin Diaz has a higher variance track record than I would have expected for his skills. When Edwin Diaz first broke into the league, I thought we were looking at the next Kimbrel. Or, you know, I, I thought this was a, a player that was going to have the kind of consistency we've seen from Hayter throughout his career. We saw that 2019 season, that first season with the Mets from Edwin Diaz, a 559 ERA, a 138 whip, a boatload of strikeouts, 99 Ks in those 58 innings, had 26 saves that year. And the underlying numbers, it was just home runs. That was it. It was just a bad home run rate. The walk rate was not out of bounds compared to what he's done for his career. The K rate was excellent. So all it takes is bad luck either with home runs or a few a few bad outings or something being a little off. And as you said, because the innings volume is so small, we can get these extreme negative results. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I, I want to go back to something, uh, kind of change the subject, back to a, a, a line of thought that you were talking through just a, a few minutes ago because you, know, you were talking about the release point with Hader. And just again, as kind of a bigger picture you know, more maybe philosophical uh, question here with, with player evaluation is that I, I sometimes get hung up with these, like with the process data, uh, like something like, like release point, because I think, okay, if there's a change in the release point, you would think that that could be problematic, but where is it showing up in terms of a result? And I can't find it with hater. You know, we went through all the different peripherals and you say, okay, well, maybe it's just, there's just more hard contact. On flies and liners, the average exit velocity is 90.3 miles an hour, which is exceedingly low and actually makes that home run ratio look really fluky. His hard hit rate uh, in terms of rate of, of batted balls uh, with an exit velocity of at least 95 miles an hour, 34.1. That's really low. So if the change in release point is a problem, I just... I just want to understand where that's showing up in terms of hitters having a better result. Yeah, I've wondered if barrel rate, especially for relievers, the barrel rate they allow is too noisy. If that's basically the same as looking at home run rate for them, because we're still talking about such a small number of batted ball events. But that's one spot where you look and say, okay, 14.6% this year is the barrel rate that Hater has allowed uh, the shortened season in 2020, he was at 14.7%, but typically he's lower than that. His career barrel rate against is 10.1%. So we're getting more damage on the contact that's being made. The hit rate, which you know you, you mentioned the BABIP, I think, at 338, that's much higher, right? The career BABIP for Josh Hader is 241. He's at 338 right now. How much of that is a higher volume of balls in play or slightly higher volume of balls in play? And, and how much of that is just bad luck on those balls in play? That's the other part of this, too. Like, or how much of it is the quality of the, the contact on those balls in play versus just normal bad luck? It's weird because Hayter, outside of the shortened 2020 season, has a very narrow range for his Babbitt. Probably just 
noise, right? Just a random thing. But his range prior to this season was 220 to 237 over four different seasons. If you throw out 2020, he had a 161 BABIP in that shortened season. So he was about as, as fortunate in the 2020 season as he has been unfortunate if we're attributing all of this to to luck and to, to nothing else, which, as we know, it's not just that. But it's really difficult to pinpoint the specific problem and, as you mentioned, the relationship between these release point changes and, and what exactly the cost is. But if, if it's deception, to me, that would the, the way you might see it is in an increase in damaging contact allowed because hitters have a better sense of what's coming. That's that's the best hypothesis I can throw out there. That is not me saying that's what's happening with certainty. That, that's just, how, how does this happen? I think that's how it can happen. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in terms of bringing it back to something actionable, uh, yeah, for me, if, if Hader has dropped, if you have any possible way to to roster him, to stash him, I think it, that's, that's the move to make. And I think going into drafts next year, I I think if you you know if you drafted Hater, I think that was good process. Maybe I, I actually I'm going to correct myself because I didn't draft Hater. I thought third round was too steep. Uh, but um, you know, generally speaking, like uh, if he was going, you know, maybe a couple rounds later, I, I I think that that would have been good process for him if he had been the first or the second reliever off the board and just relievers relievers started to go a little bit later. I would have had no issue with the process, just sometimes with relievers, again, because of the limited innings, you just wind up not not getting what you you put into uh, investing in that player. Do you think the difference going forward, rest of this season, and we could look at the 2023 into it as well, the difference between... Edwin Diaz and Josh Hader is small, medium, large. I, mean, I don't know why I'm using soda cup sizes here to, to quantify <laughs> something. Yeah, venti, tall, grande. The tall thing will always it's like tall, tall, tall should mean like big, not not the small, not the small. But that's a another issue for another day. What's the real difference between them, skills wise and expectations wise, rest of season and beyond? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, a hard question for me because I'm looking at Diaz's page right now and I'm thinking, yeah, not much difference. Maybe even a little bit of a a plus for Diaz because he hasn't consistently had the home run problem other than the one year that you mentioned. Um, and yet I do have this perception of him being more variable, um, you know, more, more risky. I, I think I'm not sure why I have that perception, but I think that that needs to be corrected. I, th- I think there's very little difference. Yeah, I, I think they're extremely similar with the possible possible difference being that you might argue that Edwin Diaz has better control. We have a, a longer track record of a lower walk rate for Diaz and maybe even a slightly higher K rate. But I think it's just instructive in that if you are if you're concerned about what happened to Josh Hader, I think it's fair because it can happen to any closer over a very limited number of innings. And that's why it's so hard to invest as early as closers, the elite closers now go. I realize that of the people listening, only a small percentage play NFBC leagues, only a small percentage play draft and hold. I do think we need to do a collective better job of, of drawing distinctions about strategies and roster constructions that we like in the draft and hold arena where there are no in-season pickups 
compared to even the later NFBC events where you make moves every week in FAB. I, I think my appetite for still aggressively pursuing a closer or multiple closers is greater in the draft and hold format. I think I'm getting further away from wanting the two elite closers or two very good closers in the leagues where I can make moves, which is probably where a lot of other players have been for a few years. There are plenty of people that said, no, I'm not paying that much for closers, but I've kind of moved around on it a couple of times thinking for a while there was some benefit to it. I've shifted the focus to catchers. We'll talk about catchers a bit later. We talked about that a little bit with Ian Khan earlier in the in the week, but I kind of feel like you, you've got this choice between either having elite catchers or elite closers. You, you could jam in both, but I think if I'm only picking one luxury item, I'm more inclined to go with a couple of elite catchers, regardless of whether it's draft and hold or if it's a league where I could make moves. But the closer returns, you know, we're looking at Liam Hendricks. He's missed some time with injury. I I don't see anything in the profile that gives me a lot of long-term concern. So if you said he's going to go a little later, maybe two rounds later in terms of ADP compared to this year, we're going to get him in the fifth round instead of the third round. I might be inclined to do that in a league where I want one elite closer in draft and hold. I think I'm I'm angling toward being interested in Liam Hendricks, even though there have been a few things that have gone wrong for him this season. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. I mean, there's to, for me a little bit and again, only a little bit more of a cause for concern with Hendricks because he's always been somebody who's filled up the strike zone, had uh, in, in recent years really low walk rates. And he's just got a merely decent walk rate this year. Uh, and that zone percentage, that it's gone way, way down. So that that's a bit of a concern. Uh, that unto itself, by the way, is not something that concerns me. There are a lot of pitchers that uh, throw out of the zone, zone a lot, but they're able to get chases and, and wind up being very good and wind up inducing a lot of weak contact as a result. But uh, that said, I, I think that my level of concern for Hendricks' walk rate is lower than uh, my enthusiasm for you know him probably dropping an ADP next year. So I think all in all, it's it's going to be a pretty a pretty good deal. Yeah, I like the possibility of getting a slight discount. Like the core skills enough to take the chance. We know he's there on that multi year deal. They're going to let him be the guy. They just don't look like a team that's going to go to a committee so long as they're spending eighteen million a year on Liam Hendricks. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I do think Rysel Iglesias is very interesting in Atlanta just because Kenley Jansen is there now, but it's a one-year deal. And if you're in a situation where you can trade for Iglesias now or pick him up and hold him going into next season, this is a weird year for him. He basically went a month or so with 
no saves before the trade. So on top of the unexpected trade cratering his roto value, he also underperformed for reasons that were out of his control for a portion of the year that was and pretty significant in, in the end. I mean, 17 saves, even if you told me at the beginning of the season, the Angels are going to trade Rysel Iglesias the trade deadline, I would have said, okay, well, you're probably getting 25 saves first. So he came up about a uh, two-thirds of the number of saves that you expected. The Ks were still there. The ratios weren't quite as good as they were the previous two seasons. Uh, we did see a slight drop in K rate and a slight increase in walk rate. This seems like reasonably normal aging for a closer, but one thing that I've been interested in with Iglesias for the last couple of seasons is that for an elite closer, he's in that rare group that has three pitches. A lot of closers are two-pitch guys, and it's you know 80-20 with the two pitches they throw. I think Iglesias will continue to age pretty gracefully because even with that lost velocity, he goes fastball, slider, and changeup. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he's... Uh... I don't know if I guess I don't know if he's going to go really that far under the radar next year, but I think wherever he goes, I mean, it's, I would be surprised if it was you know top tier, and uh, uh, that that's going to be good value, uh, I think, unless he unless I'm wrong about that. Yeah, I think he slides probably in that 75 to 90 range overall, and I'm happy to take the chance on him there too. So he's still in the circle of trust despite a disappointing. 2022 season. Uh, Aroldis Chapman, were there enough warning signs to make it easy to avoid him on draft day this season? I don't have Chapman anywhere. I don't know if that's just a, a coincidence based on how I was building teams and I, I ended up having a closer already or I found other players I liked better in that same range, but it, it seemed like he was within the group of, of closers I would have considered with some of the strategies I was using, and yet here I am not dealing with the problems that he has presented this year. Yeah, I, I did not anticipate um, the kind of season that he's having. Um, and some of that too is just perception of the team approach. Sort of like uh, when Kenley Jansen was with the Dodgers, we saw several years in a row where the skills were declining. And yet I never really seriously worried about Jansen losing his job because he was just always the Dodgers guy and there was no really clear heir apparent. Um, with the Yankees, I guess kind of a kind of a similar thing um, where you saw a, a big explosion in Chapman's walk rate last year, but we've seen that before with him. And I just figured, okay, the Yankee, you know, there's there's been periods, uh, I think maybe as recently as last year, where they would demote him to a lower leverage role for two weeks, but he'd always come back. I figured that's what would happen this year. I did not anticipate him being uh, out of any sort of high leverage role for as long as as that's been the case uh, for, for Chapman. So yeah, I got to admit, I, I was caught snoozing on that. I think the only skill that led me to just look at the other options was the walk rate spiking last year at a 15.6%. Yeah. And that's held up this year. We've also seen the K rate drop. It's only been 30 and two-thirds innings. Chapman's a free agent this offseason. I imagine some team is going to be willing to give him a one-year deal to try and bridge the gap to someone else as their closer. You know, I don't know. Teams that are always looking for closers, maybe the Phillies if they're if they're not settled in on, on someone else. If Sir Anthony Dominguez, if they feel like they only need one more guy, maybe they're the team that goes out and gets Chapman. I I, I don't know if I'm interested in him, even if that opportunity arises, but I get the sense that he's probably done as a Yankee, just given the way things have, have played out. Um, let's talk about some future relievers on the rise. I have talked about Felix Bautista a lot in recent weeks. I think he's 
probably everyone's pick for biggest mover among relievers this season. Love the way the Orioles are using him now with Jorge Lopez in Minnesota. I, th- I think he looks legit, and there's probably, for me, there's nothing left to say about Bautista. Is there anything that gives you pause about him, or does he look like a pretty easy top 10 sort of closer now that he has a job to call his own? I think he, he could be top 10 closer. I don't see um, I don't see any kind of red flags at all with Batista. I, I am curious to see what his ADP will be next year because for reasons that really I've not thought through, I guess it's just more of a gut thing. I don't perceive he's going to go top 10. Uh, so he could, if that perception is, <laughs> if that bears out to be correct, um, I could see having Batista on lots of teams next year, just like I have Jordan Romano on lots of teams this year because I thought he, he fell just far enough to be a good value. I don't know why I enjoy playing this sort of calculation game in my head so much, but uh, I like to try and approximate where these guys are going to land. It's, it's a ton of fun. The The David Bednar ADP would probably be the absolute lowest I would see someone like uh, Felix Bautista going, and I think there's a chance he's going to go closer to pick 100. I think the trust level is going to be pretty high because we're going to probably see... I don't know, another three to five saves before season's end. So he's going to be somewhere in that 12 to 14 range. Right now, the ratios are incredible. A sub two ERA, a sub one whip. K rate is great at 35%. Doesn't have a walk problem. The home run rate this year for Felix Bautista at 1.17 homers per nine is the worst of his entire career. So you can live with that if it stays there. And there's a chance it actually gets a little bit better. So I'm very much in on him if if the Bednar price is where he goes I'll have a ton of Felix Bautista but I think I think the market as a whole I think the fantasy baseball community likes him believes in him I know Eno's model also pops so there's a there's a lot of things you can look at and come away with a lot of confidence with Bautista and I think that bodes well for his chances of of even having a, a greater ADP than David Bednar did but that's kind of the the arc for Bednar right took over a second half last year you know, rebuilding team. I also think there's some more, there's going to actually be some helium on the Orioles. I think we're going to see it with Bautista. I think we're going to see it with Adley Rutschman for sure. Probably going to see it with Gunnar Henderson. Maybe Gunnar Henderson ends up being the guy that fills the the Bobby Witt Jr. Uh, spot on the, the ADP list for uh, for 2023. I could see people making a move like that, given the power, the speed, and all the things that, that Henderson is supposed to do. I'm curious what you think about Camilo Doval, because he entered this season with the expected role of being the Giants' primary closer. And this is a team that people expected to see winning more games this year. Doval, to me, has a at least the largest share of the role if they're a committee team. And I don't know if they're even necessarily a committee team at this point. I think it is more his job to lose than anything else. The skills have not been quite as good as last year, just in terms of the strikeout rate and the walk rate. But when I watch Camilo Doval pitch, Al, he looks really comfortable. He just looks like a guy that doesn't get rattled by the situation. I uh, like that he's done a good job keeping the ball in the park this year after struggling with that last year. I think there's one more level to come. I think we're going to see a little bit of everything. We're going to see the K rate tick back up. I think we can see the walk rate get back to where it was when he debuted last year. And, and Doval, I think, also has a shot at being a top 10, top 12 sort of closer. Price probably will be similar to what it was this year. And whereas this year I was a little unsure because of you know McGee and Tyler Rogers and some of those other guys, I'm interested in Doval for next season. 
I'm interested. I, I, I'm not as optimistic about what his, uh, his peripherals will look like next year. Uh, and I, I have no devolved this year. I, I didn't draft him anywhere. Um, and partly for the reason that you cited, I thought that there'd be much more of a committee there. There had been a, a real precedent for that with the Giants. And so I just didn't think that they're going to break with that to the degree that they did this year. Um, but the numbers uh, that he's put up, the, the walk rate, the strikeout rate, are, are more in line with what you would expect given his minor league numbers. And plus, you know, you've got almost at this point twice as many innings as he threw last year. So another part of the reason, too, that I shied away from Doval was that it was a very limited sample. And I just didn't completely I didn't trust the performance any more than I trusted the number of opportunities that he was going to get. So I think even if he maintains the um, the peripherals that he's put up this year, that that's good enough. That's that's not going to make him an elite closer, but it's it's going to make him uh, probably like a low end number one closer. Uh, you know, he's going to be steady and um, get his opportunities and and cash in on them often enough to you know to to be worth uh, starting. Yeah, I. I- think a closer two is ideal if, if you're looking at Doval, but if you're playing the wait for a closer game, he could be your first option if you go ahead and back him up with you know, one or two more decent second-tier relievers as well. Ian asked me on Under the Radar this week if I ever mess around with the Tampa Bay Rays bullpen. They've got plenty of skilled guys back there yet again. My argument was that it's been several years since they've leaned on one reliever to rack up all the saves. The Alex Colomay season was the one that I mentioned on the Wednesday episode. Who do you like in this bullpen? If you are going to take a chance on a Tampa Bay Ray reliever to emerge at least as the the primary source of saves and what will almost certainly remain a committee going forward. Well, I'd feel pretty good about targeting Jason Adam as a, a number two RP. Uh, I, yeah, and I agree. I don't think that they're going to go all in on Adam or, or anybody else in that bullpen. They've got, first of all, it's just a history of, of operating that way with fluid roles, but also there are a number of really talented relievers that they can call on for, for saves in that bullpen, but they have leaned on Adam a little harder in recent weeks. He has been getting the, the bulk of the saves and I, I like his profile. Um, and, and the fact that he's a righty too, I think helps. So, um, He's really gotten the the walk rate down, which was something that even when we first uh, came up uh, with the Royals, he looked like somebody maybe who could be a closer someday, but just there were just so many walks. And so this year he's he's tackled that issue. He's got um, I think he's got some strikeout upside because so right now he's got a decent strikeout rate. But if you look at the plate discipline profile, a lot of swing and miss. A lot of freezes, a 38% chase rate, which is outstanding, and a contact rate on pitches in the zone that's below 80%, which is elite. So the only thing that's really missing from that profile is he's not getting a lot of foul balls. And that's something that I haven't studied it, but seems to be kind of variable. And it's all and he's that's something he's been able to do at a higher rate in the past. So I think he could be surprisingly effective next year and and really earn that primary role, which I'll put in quotes, because again, I don't think that the Rays are going to rely on anybody a lot more than uh, anybody else in the bullpen, but I could see him walking away with with the most saves. I'm just looking at what it takes to do really well in an overall contest right now. I'm looking at the, the auction championship at the NFBC's overall standings. The top five teams as of today, as of Thursday morning, 
have 50 saves, 40 saves, 40 saves, 43 saves, and 53 saves, right? So it's a month ago. So it really looks like the 55 to 60 range at the high end is enough if you do everything else on your roster well. And that also kind of points me to some of the relievers that are going to end up possibly heading up a committee. So someone like Adam, I think, is in play for ideally closer three status. I'm really curious to see if he gets treated similar to Andrew Kittredge this draft season. That would put him more in that closer two range, or if he ends up getting more of a Paul Seawald treatment, because Seawald ended up being pretty undervalued this year uh, once he got back, given that he's taken on a larger share of the saves in Seattle than many people would have expected. Um, Looking to the future in Los Angeles, is there any shot that Evan Phillips is the closer for the Dodgers next year? I was thinking about him more as a a stash and keeper in dynasty leagues. He's you know rostered in some of those leagues just because of the the ratios and the Ks being there and the possibility of vulturing wins in a deeper league. But you know, Kimbrel, final year of his contract, Phillips, a one twenty nine ERA, a .73 WHIP, thirty one point five percent K percentage. He's keeping the ball in the park, and this is the best walk rate he's had at any level of his entire career as a pro. Is the next Dodgers closer actually just sitting there in a late inning role right now, waiting for an opportunity? I think uh, I think it could be. <laughs> I think he could be. Um, and yeah, he has. Like you mentioned, he really has uh, shaved down that that walk rate. Uh, yeah, I, I I think it's. I'm I'm not uh, confident that uh, Phillips will be there closer next year, but I also it wouldn't shock me. So. Uh, yeah, he's been really valuable, even with just uh, the five wins that he vultured and the two saves that he's picked up. So, um, you know, he, he it's sort of like uh, I was saying about Doval. Like, I don't think that given the role full time, he would necessarily be a top tier closer, but he'd be good enough to be low end number one, high end number two closer in fantasy. Yeah, I think unless the K rate ticked up, it'd be hard for him to, to crack the Hader Hendricks Edwin Diaz, like elite of the elite range. But if you told me Evan Phillips is going to have a run of, of seasons, much like we've seen from Ryan Presley the last few years at Houston, I could get on board with that. Uh, and probably someone that right now, if you're in a keeper league, you know, dynasty league, not particularly hard to acquire via trade or possibly scoop on the waiver wire, depending on the number of teams in the league. I uh, of their free agent thought here, Taylor Rogers, part of the hater trade in Milwaukee right now. He's a free agent after the season. Do you think he's closing somewhere in 2023? Because he's currently in the middle of his fourth season out of the last five with a sub three Sierra. The skills are so consistent. He doesn't walk a lot of guys. It's not the elite of the elite strikeout rates. It's just avoiding trouble because the control is really good. And I I look at him and think, man, if he's hitting free agency, there's got to be at least a handful of teams out there that see him as, as just good enough to be a consistent ninth inning guy if they want one person to handle that role. Yeah, I would bet that he probably will close somewhere in 2023. And he, he has carried over a similar profile. So kind of the same bucket as Hader as, you know, somebody should give him another chance uh, because, yeah, he's still not really walking very many batters. He's keeping the ball in the park. He's got a a good, if not great strikeout rate. And that's what he's done pretty much every year. Although last year he actually did elevate that strikeout rate, but there's also a, a, a growing trend with Rogers. And I don't know again, how seriously to take it, because even if you look at the last three seasons combined with 2020 being a short season, it's not a ton of innings, but he's had a high Babbitt rate three years running 
and a sub 70% strand rate with this year, it being actually under 60%. Normally you'd just say, well, you know, he's just not stranding very many runners. That's something that's going to, whoever gives him a chance to, to close, that's something that's going to correct itself. And he's going to be really good again, but it's three years running with um, not stranding very many runners. And you, you have to wonder at some point if maybe, there is something to that. Yeah, it's really strange to see just how how much that's dropped off for him uh, going back to the start of 2020 compared to the the rates that I think were pretty normal from 2016 to 2019. It was kind of a 74 to 86% range. That 86% is a tick on the high side, but to see someone hovering between 59.5% and 69.3% and left on base percentage it makes you think something is off that uh, you know, working in those situations Maybe he's become predictable. I don't know how correctable that is, but I I still think there's pretty good skills here. And I don't know which team it's going to be, but I do think if you're trying to stash someone for future saves who's not necessarily getting more than the occasional save in Milwaukee right now, Taylor Rogers is a pretty good option for that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Let's talk about steals for a bit. This probably could have been its own episode, but hey, you know, we can always extend it into a two-parter if we need to. I was curious, how did you approach steals this draft season? Did you go and try and make sure that the first two or three hitters you had on every team were guys that also ran, or did you try and spread the speed around a little bit more on your rosters, making it more a priority just to make sure that the bulk of your players could offer you at least five or eight bags instead of taking on the true zeros. I think of uh, you know Corey Seager as a player that people might avoid or Carlos Correa or Brendan Rodgers. Uh, there are other masher types that also don't run, but those were guys that play up the middle that don't run. I thought those were kind of unique players because if you had them, you almost had to go earlier and take the 20-plus steal guys in the early round. So what was your approach to steals this year, and, and how do you feel about it with a little more than a month to go? Well, you know, I was absolutely targeting Aaron Judge for his uh, 60-20 potential uh, this sure. year. Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Who wasn't? I'm just laughing because I'm, I'm looking at my best team, which is my uh, TGFBI team, and he uh, has, you know, he's got 14 steals, and uh, that that makes him my, my third best after uh, Yelich and, and Trey Turner. Um, <laughs> but so, uh, but no, in terms of approach, I mean, if I could get, you know, as an example, you know, Trey Turner. Uh, with the, I think it was the first pick overall here. Um, you know, if I had a very early pick, then I was certainly going to target somebody who could provide power and speed. That's, you know, pretty much ADP bears out. That's what everybody was doing. Uh, but, you know, otherwise I was really just trying to piecemeal it. And in some leagues it worked out and in other leagues it hasn't. And it's probably 
banking a little too much on my ability to to pounce on stolen base potential in, in fab at just the right time. It's it's not easy to do because everybody else is trying it too. But I it's you know I I really was not going to overpay for steals in drafts, and so it's it's really you know it's it's rested on both my ability to get them in, in fab and also, you know, to get a little lucky with, uh, you know, Aaron judge and, and others who have uh, produced a little more there than I would have expected. I, I was trying to be a little more balanced and trying not to overpay up top just to get guys that could steal 30 plus bases. And I also think it from a profile perspective, when you lose a player who you're expecting 30 plus bags from, you don't make up that ground very easily on the waiver wire because there are very few players that become available that run as often as, you know, say, Starling Marte's projection expected him to run. Every once in a while, you luck into John Birdie, who we've talked a lot about on this show, and it ends up working out okay when the timing lands that way. But I was just looking at those overall standings for stolen bases in that auction overall contest that I mentioned. The teams that are, are winning the stolen base category in the overall are sitting at 131 and 129 steals, it's really interesting. Those two teams in particular are both in the top 10 overall. But if you look down to the next 15 or so standing spots below that, there really aren't any other teams in the top 40 in the contest that are near the top of the leaderboard and steals. So I, I don't know if that means that, that paying a premium for steals is a bad idea. I think it's a reminder that the stolen bases you're looking for don't always correlate with everything else that players do that we care about, and it's just really hard to find the right balance with this category. And I think, aside from the risk of having a 25 or 30 steel player get hurt and having to try and chase speed from really limited skilled players on the waiver wire, I think I do have that preference of of finding a very good player who only runs a little as, as something that I want to do as a repeatable skill. I want multiple players on my roster that are more like that. So that, that balanced approach is increasingly appealing to me as opposed to the, I got to get 50 steals in the first three rounds. You don't have to get 50 steals in the first three rounds necessarily. You just have to be a little more aggressive in making sure you're not missing out on the long tail speed throughout other parts of your roster if you get pushed out on those early speedsters that you like. I just think that's that's the only way to go. Like you say, you you risk taking a huge hit if your main steel sources get injured. Uh, there's there's some variability, right? And I mean, just like I mentioned, Trey Turner, who's my leader in steals. I think I'm second in steals in this league. And again, I've done it with a piecemeal approach. But Turner, you know, Turner's got 20. You would have thought maybe he would have had at least five more by this point in the season. So. You just, you know, and if you if you got somebody you're counting on for 40 or 50, they may only give you 30. So. I, you know, it's, it's not easy and it doesn't always work, but I do feel like taking a piecemeal approach, both in the draft and in fab is, is really the best way to go. I think part of the other problem for me is I I get hung up on the, the thing that the things that some speedsters can't do instead of believing in them for the things they can do. Adelise Garcia might be the best example of this because he's not just a speed player. He's got a shot at a 25-25 home run season because he's sitting at 2020 already before the end of August. And I probably should have just been interested because Garcia can hit the ball hard and he runs well, he plays good defense. There was enough there to feel better about the playing time 
than I did based on the offensive profile alone. I looked at the swing and miss, the lack of walks, and I I like overwrote all the good things about Garcia because of the the smaller flaws that were not going to cost him short-term playing time or were less likely to cost him short-term playing time than I initially thought. Yeah, well, I, I do think that it does help uh, to, to, you know, take a more balanced approach at, at evaluating players because, you know, there's just enough variability in, in the stolen base output that, you know, I think it's all right to miss out on, on those steals that they get if, if you have some concerns. Yeah, 31.2% K rate a year ago for Adelis Garcia down at 28.2% this year. Still swinging and missing, swinging at pitches outside the zone about 40% of the time, but the barrel rate has been strong. I think when he connects, he's going to continue to do damage and the, the efficiency as a base stealer. It's not just 20 steals where he's been caught 10 times. He's 20 for 23, and he was 16 for 21 last year. So I, I started looking at some players as we we're putting this rundown together who don't jump off the page to me in, in some instances, but I wonder if they actually have more stable skills than I'm giving them credit for. So I'm just going to throw these names out there and you can let me know what you think of them. Uh, Tyro Estrada. He's at 258, 308, 408, 11 homers, 16 steals. The pessimistic side of me says the low barrel rate, the power all comes to the pull side, and having that kind of low OBP could negatively impact his lineup spot. But the optimistic side, the side that says, hey, don't miss out on another Adelis-type player, at least in terms of cheap speed. Maybe there's not so much power here, but he's 73rd percentile in sprint speed. Estrada's a versatile defender. And he puts a ton of balls in play, 15.3% K rate. He doesn't have that swing and miss concern that kept me away from a player like Adelis Garcia. So I started looking at Estrada and I'm saying, what's the difference between the current version of Tyro Estrada and the current version of Whit Merrifield? Like if you were choosing between those two players for the rest of this season, who would you take? And do you think there's actually a clear edge for one of those guys looking ahead to next season? That's a great comp. And part of what uh, what I've liked about Estrada this year is just the context in a, in a Giants lineup where almost nobody plays every day. He's pr- pretty much the only player who's uh, not really had a stretch where he sat a lot and um, oftentimes right in the middle of the order, too. So um, even though, like you said, the barrel rate isn't very high, um, you know, the skill profile overall in a different situation would would not be enticing. It also is good enough that when you put him in this situation and you you add the steals on top of that, I I, I like his situation better than I like Merrifield's situation in Toronto. So I actually would would go with Estrada over Merrifield. I think we're just looking at Merrifield as a possible part-time player at this stage of his yeah. career. Being on a better team actually hurts him quite a bit. And you're right with Estrada. There's only... There are only three players in the Giants that have reached 400 plate appearances at this point in the season. Wilmer Flores playing a little bit more than usual. Mike Yastrzemski, who's just been healthy and mostly playing on the big side of platoon. And then Estrada are the three players. And of those three, uh, Tyro Estrada providing the most fantasy value because they've all had double-digit home runs, but 16 steals with a 258 average. Just just good enough to be one of those nice early season pickups who's managed to stick around and play give us a pretty surprising amount of speed value over the course of this season. I don't think Andres Jimenez fits into the Adelis Garcia skills flaw bucket quite the same way that someone like Tyro Estrada does. But I do think the, the Andres Jimenez arc is really interesting because I did not see 
this level of power coming against big league pitching. We saw indications of it being possible with the numbers at AAA last year. Jimenez led a 502 slugging percentage. He popped 10 homers in 52 games at Columbus. I just thought that wasn't going to work against top-level pitching. So far, I've been wrong. He's got 15 homers in 404 plate appearances this season. He's 15 for 17 as a base stealer. I think the naysaying part of me looks at that walk rate and says it's a 5.7% walk rate. Do we really think he's going to continue to stay on a 2020-plus pace while hitting for average if he doesn't walk? Is that is that going to hold him back from really kind of reaching that next level or even sustaining the current level over another full season next year? Um, doesn't hit the ball particularly hard. He's 42nd percentile in hard hit rate. So I think some of my skepticism about the, the power might be validated by that underlying number, but it's a game of results. So I don't have Jimenez anywhere, Al. Did I make a mistake? And and should I be interested in him next year? Uh, I mean, you know, maybe a mistake for this year. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I have some some similar uh, questions too about what he, his profile uh, will look like next year. I mean, he did bring the, the barrel rate up uh, considerably. In fact, he more than doubled it. But when you start with a 3.6% barrel rate, it's easier to do, obviously. But still, you know, putting it in a territory where his power numbers don't look totally fluky. Uh, it cut, you know, cutting the strikeout rate has also helped that too. I don't know that he's necessarily a 300 hitter like he's been so far this year, even with the lower strikeout rate. So I'll go into next year with a little bit of skepticism on Jimenez, but there, there's absolutely no denying that he took a big step forward this year. And it's just a question of how much regression, if any, uh, it's going to be reasonable to, to expect, uh, expect next year. So I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to overlook what Jose Ramirez did earlier in his career. I mean, Jose Ramirez, when he was a, a prospect coming through the Cleveland system, was kind of a batting average plus speed player. And somehow when he got to the big leagues, he developed a lot more power than most people expected. He went from you know low slugging percentages upon arrival, like 346, I think, as a rookie, 340 in 2015, to a 462 slug in 2016. It was 11 homers and 22 steals that year. And then in 2017, got to that next level where he hit 29 homers and stole 17 bases as a 24-year-old. And it's funny because we've we've at least got barrel rate numbers now. We're, we, we can go far enough back in the past and see what kind of barrel rate trends are, are realistic? What kind of hard hit rate trends are realistic? And if you... If you would have looked at Ramirez, even though he was very young for a rookie in 2015, and you just said he's got a 1.8% barrel rate and a 24% hard hit rate, so he's not the kind of guy that's hitting the ball hard but hitting on the ground. He's just not hitting the ball hard. It would have been very difficult to look at him from a numbers perspective and then say, more power's coming. I want this guy on my team. It's there. And I, I'm trying not to make the same kind of mistake that I might have made with Ramirez years ago with Jimenez as someone that's clearly added something that's making him unlock this extra level of power because the court like the roto skills he's putting out there that's a future early rounder I don't think he's going to get that treatment right away in 2023 but if this is one big step toward that the next step is going to be even more exciting and he'll end up being slightly undervalued even at a highly inflated price if in fact this is a a more sustainable sort of thing. So I, I'm trying to figure out where I need to look, what I need to see, what I need to watch about Jimenez that would give me 
confidence that this is actually real power and that maybe there is something more going on here. I think part of what we have to watch um, with with Jimenez uh, using Ramirez as kind of the template is uh, is the launch angle and the fly ball rate. Because when Ramirez started to show more power, he was not only hitting the ball a little bit harder, but he was hitting a lot higher. <laughs> and, uh, you know, really from, I think, around 2016 forward, he's he's been one of the, the bigger fly ball hitters in the majors. So, you know, you look at where Jimenez is this season, like I said, you know, taking his uh, barrel rate up into a, a territory where if he did launch the ball more, that you could you could see the level of power he's given us or maybe even a little bit more uh but yeah not not a ton of fly balls from him this season so if we see that advance next year then yeah i think maybe he is that future first rounder that that you're uh, possibly projecting for the big big difference for me right now is that Jimenez doesn't have the ultra low k rates that ramirez had upon arrival in the big leagues either that's uh Something that needs to, to be watched, but I, I just I've overlooked players like this before, and I don't I don't want to do it again because uh, it could be very costly to do that. Let's talk about Nico Horner for just a moment. I think the power seems really fluky here, even more fluky than the Jimenez power for what it's worth. Seven homers so far this season, a two ninety one, three thirty eight, four hundred eight line, fourteen steals. The steals I'm I'm in on that ninety first percentile sprint speed. 99th percentile and outs above average. So I think that's good from a playing time perspective. Play great defense, stay on the field, rack up playing time, rack up counting stats. Totally on board with that. Um, what are you seeing for Nico Horner? Like who Who is his most reasonable comp as we try and figure out what his 2023 could look like? Mm. I mean, I'm kind of thinking like Jeff McNeil with steals, but I mean, I, I, I could go with that. Yeah. I mean, I think I think yeah the batting average and like you said the the steals are legit. I, I'm not really buying the the power. It's not you know tremendous power, but it, it you know seven homers after not hitting any the last two years um, in, in roughly 300 plate appearances. Uh, you know that that could set up an, an expectation for a level of power that I, I'm not expecting next year. Yeah, I'm wondering maybe Tommy Tommy Edmond early early career Tommy Edmond. Tommy Edmond has not, uh, since that first season, he slugged 500 as a rookie, hit 11 homers in 92 games. Tommy Edmond has not slugged 400 in a season in three years since that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's better because you're actually getting the steals there. I think, I think that's fair. All right. Well, that, that makes me more interested. I'm talking myself into Nico Horner. What, what is <laughs> happening here? Uh, last player I put on the rundown for today, Cody Bellinger. The mystery wrapped in a riddle, and if he were in Minnesota or Wisconsin, he'd be battered and, and fried and dipped in chocolate sauce at the state fair because it'd be fun. Deep-fried Bellinger. Um, weird. 208, 266, 404, 17 homers, 11 steals, career-low walk rate, and now a two-year run with a K rate in the 27% range. Still a great defender, so I think that keeps him on the field, at least for, for now, given the makeup of that roster. How lost is Cody Bellinger, and, and in what circumstances do you want to roster him in the future? Yeah, probably not in 12-teamers again, which is just still feels like such a weird thing to say uh, based on you know where our expectations were not that long ago. Um, but... You know, I just maybe there is some hope for uh, just a high enough batting average that um, 
you know, like a, a, a 2010, 2015 profile makes them, makes them relevant in 12 teamers is, you know, kind of one of the, the last players on your roster. Um, but yeah, I'd say I don't even have a, a lot of confidence in, in him reaching that level. I saw the the Dan Zimborski piece over at Fangraphs that was digging into Bellinger. And prior to 2020, the Zips projection for Bellinger had a rest of career war that put him third among position players. That was behind <laughs> Juan Soto and Ronald Acuna. That was the list. That was it. That was. I mean, that was not that long ago. It's amazing. It's one of the biggest collapses I've ever seen. And it's a fascinating piece, by the way. I think you should check it out if you're listening and you're kind of interested just to see like how how high did the ceiling appear to be and where is the floor now. I do think the speed there, just the 11 steals and being able to do that with something else, still having some power, running into home runs, still, still being able to drive the ball on occasion, that might lead me to take the occasional chance on him. But yeah, even a 12-team league, if you're talking a 12-team league, where you start five outfielders, maybe as my fifth outfielder, more likely as a bench outfielder. And and it's just, I'm really bad at cutting players like Bellinger who have an elite ceiling from the not-so-distant past. I have a very hard time letting players like that go because the FOMO for me is even greater than it is with a prospect. Like I, He's shown it. He owns those skills. I, I believe in that old Ron Chandler mantra you know, once you display a skill, you own it. There is a MVP caliber player in there somewhere. But then again, if the Dodgers can't get him right, can anyone get him right at this point? It's been long enough. It's been long enough now where I think it's totally fair to significantly lower the expectations. But even if what you see now is what you get, a bottom third of the order hitter with power and speed, that does still play in some deep leagues despite the the batting average risk. Yeah. And you know I'm I'm looking at his uh stat page now and and I think that a, a lot of what he has done this year lines up pretty well with with 2018. And so you say okay, you know, there there's some some decent power there. Uh there's there's enough steals to make him make him relevant. Uh but he batted 260 that year. Uh, now he wasn't striking out quite as much, but the big difference was just he wasn't uh, hitting fly balls quite to the same degree, and uh, you know so he had a, a slightly above normal, uh, higher than normal BABIP. Uh, but I'm looking at that that year. His expected batting average in 2018 was 237. So I almost think that that's like that's the ceiling. It's like a, maybe a 240 hitter, and I'm not at all confident that we'll we'll see that again from him. Yeah, you start to look now at the O-swing percentages from the last two seasons, 35.2% and 33.8%. In some ways, this is this is Brugnet Odor's profile these days. Yeah. You know, a, yeah. a strikeout rate flirting with 30%. Um, late, like late Rangers career, uh, Brugnet Odor, like 2019 Brugnet Odor was a 30 home run hitter, 11 steals. He hit 205 with a 283 OBP and a 439 slug. That's kind of what Bellinger has become. He's turned into mid-20s Rudin Odor. The ceiling was higher, but the floor actually very similar. And I think that's a, a very difficult player to roster um, in a lot of leagues. But deeper leagues, I might still be in because I think there's still enough playing time there. I would actually feel better about Bellinger's playing time 
if the Dodgers moved on. Because I think as a team that has perennial World Series aspirations, they are more likely to start messing around with his playing time. Whereas a team on the rise that might need him to just play every day for his defense and possibly rediscover the previous levels with his bat, they might be more patient with him. I think that could become part of the story in 2023. Maybe maybe Bellinger loses more playing time against lefties or yeah, against lefties in the future, and, and that's what drags the counting stats down even more. You know, he's already in the bottom of the order, but you start taking away playing time, play, take away more playing time, that makes the problem worse. We are going to go, uh, before we go, I should let everyone know you can get a subscription to The Athletic for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash podcast. so be sure to do that if you haven't done so already. Follow Al on Twitter at AlMelkYourBB. Find me at Derek Van Riper. We are back with our waiver wire live stream on Friday. That'll happen at 4 o'clock Eastern on the Athletic Fantasy YouTube page. So watch us live or listen to us right here once the podcast version drops on Friday evening. For El Melchior, I'm Derek Van Riper. We are back with you on Friday.